Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Welcome to Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson in partnership with the Naked Scientists. And this time we've got an astronaut who knows how to spell his name. My name is John McBride and that's spelled J-O-N. M-C-B-R-I-D-E. We also hear from Edwards Air Force Base about the hypersonic X-15. Go for a walk on Mars with a government minister. And if that wasn't enough, we're joined by the presenter of Radio 4's It Is Rocket Science, Helen Keane. Now, Helen, you're described on the BBC website as comic but scientifically accurate. <laughs> is, that, is that fair? I hope so, yeah. I mean, obviously, the comedy kind of comes first because we're made by the comedy department. But, yeah, I am a colossal space geek. So, yeah, I would take it quite badly, personally, if it turned out we got stuff wrong. So. How do you balance the two? How do you balance trying to get science across and being funny about it without distorting the science it's kind of quite a tough call sometimes and sometimes there are things that we really want to talk about that we just think we cannot make this funny or it just feels really disrespectful and then my dog exploded (laughs) yeah and you've got so many eccentrics obviously it was such an eccentric idea you know we forget that for such a long time it wasn't a mainstream idea the idea that space travel was even possible in the 20s and 30s was very much sort of something that people poo-pooed so you do get these quite eccentric people who are drawn to it and they do lend themselves to comedy the second series has just started and that's going to cover everything from UFOs to Mars exploration and that's the the first one that that's just gone out and then we look at sort of the history of astronomy and people who might have been sort of overlooked from that history and we also look at the way that we've made mistakes in the past with um, space science and astronomy and how those mistakes have actually moved us forward the um, failure is an option yeah exactly the buzz exactly. phrase and yeah and also just the way we've, we've sort of understood the universe has sort of changed so much obviously from the you know the sort of really thing that everybody knows from sort of us being right at the centre of it to us being you know practically insignificant and the fact that yeah and we're sort of not only that but then not only are we in a sort of unfashionable arm of the uh, Milky Way but also that you know our universe is just one universe amongst many other brain universes and it's we're getting more and more insignificant all the time I love, so. the, I love the thought of us being in an unfashionable arm yes, of the Milky Way is that I like, Paraphrasing Douglas Adams. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Did you apply for a Mars One place? I didn't. Did you, actually? I was going to ask you this as well. No, I I think uh, someone would have something to say about that. But Gillian Finity, who has been on the Space Boffins podcast before because she was one of the women, along with myself, Mm. who applied for the Lynx Space Mm, Challenge. Gillian has done brilliantly. Recently, she's been 
everywhere in the news because she's been winning all sorts of snowboarding championships. <laughs> but also Gillian got down to the shortlist, to the final thousand and we can reveal that she's past the physical as well so Gillian Gillian. Gillian is getting closer (laughs) and closer to her place yes but they haven't actually built a spacecraft that will take people to Mars have they or any sort of Mars Mars colony or (laughs) I, I don't know I mean even if this all happens Mars, isn't it just unrelentingly grim? Wouldn't it be just an awful, awful, awful place to live the rest of your life and then (laughs) die there? Well, yeah, I think that's something that we're kind of of talking about a little bit with the show, that this idea that how do you you cope with that? How do you cope with being one of the pioneers? And it was quite something that I really, really was interested by, was the idea that NASA have actually started looking at diaries and records and things from people who were early pioneers in the New World, going to America, people who went to the Arctic, the Antarctic, to see how they coped with that sort of... Of isolation that normally completely... didn't end well. Yes, a, a lot of them sometimes died. Sometimes <laughs> it did, yeah, sometimes it didn't end well. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting area because you, if you kind of assume that we've got to do this, I mean, it, obviously it's a moot point, but I personally think we've got to explore other planets. I'm very much in favour of human space flight. So that's sort of my uh, my view on it. But yeah, I think if you, if you assume that, then you, somebody's got to be the first and those first people are not going to have a great time. I, I agree with that, but you look at the, the difficulties, say, the first people who from the west who mm. went to the, the united states what's now the united mm. states went to america mm. i mean they didn't have to make their own oxygen or drink their own recycled <laughs> urine it, it's very different going to mars and i think people can forget that i suppose when you look at comparatively the the amount of technology we have now and the amount of technology they had then there's probably a sim i don't want to say there's a similar level of difficulty but i think maybe it's more comparable than it seems from our sort of modern perspective now where we can go anywhere in the world and however inhospitable it is we can more less make it tolerable. Well, I got a little taste of what it would be like on Mars recently, because if you need to test a Mars rover, you have to head 30 miles north of London to Stevenage in Hertfordshire, because that's where Airbus Defence and Space have just opened their new and improved, bigger and shinier Mars yard. This simulated Martian landscape is 30 metres long with 300 tonnes of sand, designed to ensure that the rover that the UK is building for the European Space Agency's ExoMars mission will be a success. Now, the launch of the Mars Yard was packed full of dignitaries from government and space agencies and, of course, less smartly dressed journalists like myself. Well, as everyone concentrates on getting photographs of Vince Cable and the head of the UK Space Agency, Dave Parker, standing on the surface of Mars, I thought I'd uh, go for a little walk on the red planet myself. And the first thing to notice is, apart from the very bright orange colour of the sand, is that it's so thick, my feet are sort of falling, and I'm wearing DMs, (laughs) are actually getting covered very quickly by the sand and I'm actually slipping while trying to walk on the simulated Martian surface. It's lovely to see lots of rocks exactly like those panoramas that you've seen from the Mars rovers that you can look at on the web and also three prototypes of Mars rovers very carefully slowly rolling across Mars. I'm Van Rodetra, I'm the project manager here at Airbus Defence and Space in charge of the project Mars Rover. 
what we want to do is to actually put the models that we've got here, the prototypes, through their paces to actually confirm whether they're able to negotiate some of these very steep slopes that we will probably encounter on, on the Martian surface. So there are some slopes here which we've deliberately created, which we know the rover has to avoid in order to actually find a safe passage through to its destination. But you haven't actually started building the ExoMars rover yet that's going to go on Mars? No, no, uh, absolutely not. We are well uh, away uh, still in terms of the actual flight build. What we want to do is to demonstrate the capabilities through these models first. We will be getting engineering models of the other equipments of the rovers. We will be having test benches in order to prove the functionalities and interfaces just to make sure that the design that we've got is actually the right one for the flight rover. And we will then start the, the build of the flight rover. And that's uh, expected to start sometime second half of next year. Now, there's going to be some form of autonomy on this rover. Is that what you would consider to be the most difficult part of the system, or or is there another engineering aspect? There are lots of technical challenges, but one of the key ones is the autonomous uh, navigation and control of the rover, because you have to bear in mind a signal takes 15 minutes. We cannot control the rover live real time so we have to rely on its its own autonomous capability so all these algorithms that we're developing to help achieve that objective will be demonstrated in this yard this yard is primarily to prove the locomotion mobility and autonomous functions of the rover there are other test facilities that we'll be using in order to exercise thermal temperature extremes, vibration that the rover will see during launch as well as landing because don't forget it will be a fairly fairly abrupt landing on, on Mars so there'll be some shock loads that we'll be simulating and all of that will be tested through various facilities we've got here in Stevenage as well as in Europe. Now an engineer whispered in my ear that once you step on Mars and I did put my size five and a half patent leather DM boot on the Martian surface just, just yeah. a few moments ago that you filled with sand you can't get that orange sand you find it everywhere is that true actually this sand is much better than what we had in the old yard the old one i can guarantee you that once you stood on that it was extremely difficult to get that off this one i think you can just about manage with with a little bit of a clean but uh, no there's no deliberate uh, uh, policy here to 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 color it or uh, but we had to select the sand which was of the right grade very fine sand and, and with the right texture in order to simulate as representative surfaces as the Martian terrain. And you got that information from previous missions? Yes, of course. And of course, we get data from, from, from the NASA uh, missions as well, as well as uh, previous ESA missions as to exactly what the terrain is going to look like. And the terrain does vary on Mars surface. There is what we call a fairly benign and reasonable surface for the rover to drive through. But there are some very, very rocky, very deep crevices and slopes that it has to negotiate as well. So we try and simulate all of that here. Alvaro Jimenez, Director of Science and Robotic Exploration of European Space Agency. The thing with a rover is that once it is in Mars, it is autonomous, it is robotic, we cannot do anything if it gets stuck. We can't go there and push it to get out of the sun. So we have to make sure that the wheels, the software, the hardware, everything is proved to work in the harsh condition of Mars. Now, ExoMars is a a joint mission with the Russians and the European Space Agency. Does the political situation with Russia have any effect on future missions, particularly this one? We don't see any effect. I mean, you you cannot predict the future, but we don't see any effect. There is no interest from one or the other partners to have a problem. 
and uh, also you have the example of uh, launch of uh, Soyuz uh, uh, with two uh, Russian astronauts and one American astronaut all together there and nobody thought that this was a problem. So why should be a problem in going to Mars? I don't think uh, that will happen. Hi, I'm David Parker. I'm Chief Executive of the UK Space Agency. You must be very pleased about that, not just the turnout, but also the attention, the importance that's now being placed on Britain's role in future Mars exploration. Yeah, I think the role of UK and Europe in all of these really exciting space science missions is something we, we have to keep telling the story about. We have to keep saying there are all, all these amazing projects like Mars Express and Venus Express and this year Rosetta on its way to rendezvous with a comet that really make the, the European scientific programme in space, I think, the best in the world. And the UK is part of that, a really big part of that. It's our technology, it's our scientists that are helping make that happen. But this Mars yard here in Stevenage is a, a place where you can see it really Really happening, developing the technologies for an autonomous rover to go to Mars, the first one to try and explore below the surface with a, a drill that gets really below the irradiated bits of the soil, is a real landmark for the whole European space programme and therefore for the UK as well. Vince Cable, what would you say is the most important thing about the contribution that the UK makes to missions like this, the ExoMars mission, and with a, a Mars yard in Stevenage? Well, this is a brilliantly inventive way of illustrating the importance of the British space industry. You know, we've got 30,000 people, often very, very highly technically qualified people, working in the space industry on satellites and robots, and it's, it's potentially growing. I mean, by 2030, our current plans, if we work with the industry, we'll be getting up to 100,000 people in this industry. And it's got enormous applications in terms of weather systems, improving transport in general. And it's, uh, and it's all been done through European cooperation. It's not something Britain could do on its own, but we make a major contribution. And uh, I've got to say, you looked quite comfortable standing on the surface of Mars there. Uh, yes, I, I, I did. I, mean, I can see all kind of headlines coming down track about what planet does he think he's living on, etc. But yes, it was. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was. It's. Uh, it, it's real. It's science, technology, and economic benefit and fun. Business Secretary Vince Cable joining me, David Parker, Alvaro Jimenez, and Vano Dedra on the surface of Mars in Stevenage. Never thought I'd say that. I like the idea of sending politicians to Mars. That's quite a good one, isn't it? Mars even more inhospitable than Stevenage. (laughs) Interesting, though, I think your question about the European-Russian cooperation in that feature, I mean, the bottom line is they have no choice but to work with the Russians. Otherwise, how would they get to the Mm. space station? Yeah, how they get to the space station, how Mm. would they launch big things? Well, they're going to use a proton rocket for ExoMars, which is a a Russian rocket. And actually, NASA didn't want to be involved in ExoMars. They ended up going with the Russians to make this this happen. There's so much on this. With the um, NASA and Russian cooperation, as you say, no choice but to use... Russian rockets and Russian Soyuz to get to and from the space station. But there's a very strong statement from NASA that's uh, recently been posted. And uh, the, the statement from NASA is, the choice here is between fully funding the plan to bring space launches back to America or continuing to send millions of dollars to the Russians. <laughs> it's, it's really a shot, wow. at, it's a shot over the bow to Congress, really, who have, have cut funding to NASA, saying, if you fund us properly we will build a space 
spacecraft and we will fund means of getting our that's astronauts to exciting, and from the space though, station. That's quite exciting, isn't it, from it, our point yeah, of view? Yeah, that's kind of, yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's, it's quite aggressive to the Russians. But on the other hand, yeah, it would be fantastic to see America, we see NASA getting more funding and, and being able to do this sort of stuff themselves as well. So we have, you know, multiple countries with massive rocket Well, space is all about cooperation. Mm. Yes. But in, an, in the same way as sort of fuel security... I wonder whether that's the aspect too, is Mm. that you can never quite guarantee, can you, if you're totally dependent on one country Mm. to get to space, then that is all your eggs in one basket. Mm. You are stuffed if something happens. I heard a really nasty Californian phrase which epitomises this, I think. (laughs) Cooperation. So it's pushing together cooperation and competition. You see what they did there? So the idea is to, to pull the things together. So actually, it works better when you've got some competition but cooperating within that framework. And you have to remember, go back to the 1970s, mid-70s, you had Apollo Soyuz, where you had the Soviet Union cooperating mm. with the United States. Exactly. Exactly. And it would be such a shame to not have the Russians involved at all because... They have done so much with Mia. Yeah. And they, they're on. amazing. Yes. They are amazing. And, and you don't want it to become a sort of space Cold War again, do you? But having said that, if this means that Congress will spend more money mm. <laughs> on the then. American space programme with their own launches, then OK, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy with that. I mean, the International Space Station, you can hardly build a wall down the middle of it and say, right, that's the Russian bit, that's the American bit. We are now effectively two space stations. I had an incident with the Lou's, wasn't there, a few years ago? <laughs> Where it all got a bit tricky. And uh, yeah, Technically, this is true, technically, the Americans shouldn't use the Russian toilet mm. and the Russians shouldn't use the American toilet. Yeah. There are rules about these there sort of things. Are, yes. They have to get permission from Mission Control if they want to use the other toilet. But there's also very different... Oh, maybe we're getting into too much information, but yeah, there's also very different standards of paper, I've heard as well. Oh, really? That, yes, it's a different... Yeah, well, well, maybe we won't go there. How interesting. <laughs> it's funny because Helen and I have just been pouring just before we started recording this, talking oh, of my word, paper yes. over my collection of space stamps. Yeah. Oh, it was all, I thought we were sharing it for <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please, please. I must admit, the, the some of the we were sort of mm. ooing and ahhing as only two space geeks could <laughs> over some of the Russian stamps are just stunningly so beautiful. The beautiful. artwork and, and they just really capture that romance of space in a way that's always, I think, been part of the sort of Russian view of space in the universe. And you really see that in their stamps. The fact that they see it as this beautiful romantic place that's beyond the earth, that's beyond the petty concerns of the earth, where magic happens. And yeah, it really comes across. Yeah, say what you like about totalitarian state, but they don't half have the best stamps. <laughs> they do. They do. This is the Space Boffins podcast in partnership with The Naked Scientist. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and on our blog at spaceboffins.com. 50 years ago, astronauts flew an experimental rocket plane higher and faster than any piloted aircraft before or since. Launched from beneath a B-52 bomber, America's X-15 flew beyond the atmosphere into space. Launch. Up to 
It seems incredible that despite its achievements, the X-15 space plane project was abandoned in 1968. But now the pioneering effort that went into the X-15 is being revisited by the companies building the new generation of space planes. I went to see a rather sad-looking life-size model of the X-15 tucked away behind a hangar at Edwards Air Force Base in California, where I spoke to historian Stephanie Smith. We're really on hallowed ground, aren't we here? We're standing on the tarmac of Edwards Air Force Base and this evokes everything about the pioneers of, of aviation, of military aviation, of supersonic flight, of, of space flight and standing by an X-15 rocket plane. I would say, and most historians of aerospace history would agree, that it was the most productive research program for aviation ever. It undertook 199 flights and extended for over a dozen years. It really took aviation that leap forward and made records that have yet to be broken for manned aircraft. Highest, you know, farthest, fastest, those kinds of things have yet to be broken by humans in manned aircraft. And it's fair to say, really, this is a spacecraft as much as an aircraft. It really was. It was intended to go beyond the realm of what we would call the atmosphere into that realm of space. So the Air Force recognized its Air Force X-15 pilots as astronauts. The NASA administration didn't do so until much later, but the Air Force pilots were recognized as having gone above the atmosphere and into that realm of space, and that's what it was meant to do. And when you talk to the X-15 pilots who are still living, and they talk to you about seeing that, that curve of the earth and seeing the change in the sky from blue to black, what they're really looking at is the edge of space. I suppose at first glance, it looks like a 1960s fighter plane type aircraft, but actually it's very much stretched. It's black and a pointed front and one enormous engine down the middle then on the side it's got the the nasa logo it's also got painted on the names of of some of the pilots and the one that that stands out on that is is neil armstrong he flew this he flew into space on this before he flew to the moon now i think you would say that neil armstrong is the most famous but not necessarily for what he did here he is remembered here very fondly but as a co-worker and engineer pilot and not for what he later went on to become, which was, of course, an astronaut with worldwide fame. This flew in, what, the mid-1960s, early to mid-1960s, that, sort of, that sort of period. And then no one flew in that, those sorts of flights again, those suborbital, those sort of suborbital flights in a space plane. Well, I think you can definitely say that the X-15 led directly to our ability to develop and build the space shuttle. And the concepts, the research of the X-15 was directly applicable to the space shuttle. It just happened to be that from the late 1950s to the 1960s, in these 199 research flights, they were looking at those kinds of issues. How do you control an aircraft? What kinds of things can you learn about heating at high speeds, at high altitude, and so on? I think that concept of plane that could go into space and then turn around and land and the pilot would just get out and walk down the runway was 
a concept that captured engineers' imaginations and led to that idea of wanting what was basically a reusable spacecraft in terms of the space shuttle. There's a cartoon that one of the engineers at NASA drew in 1966. It shows the difference between being rescued by the Navy in your capsule as you're floating in the ocean, maybe having to you know, protect yourself from sharks, waving, hey, we're over here, we're over here, versus the cool pilot who gets to just walk out onto the runway and step into a convertible with the stewardess or, you know, somebody like that at the wheel. Uh, there, there is that perceived difference in how should you come back from space. U.S. Air Force historian Stephanie Smith talking about the X-15 on the concrete at Edwards Air Force Base in California. That was wonderful. I love that. I did like the way the way she sounded slightly hesitant about Neil Armstrong's reputation made me think, did he owe someone money? (laughs) (laughs) Was he not entirely welcome back? (laughs) Well, they're renaming Dryden, which is the NASA facility at Edwards, they're renaming it after Neil Armstrong because of the X-15. So the X-15 is starting to be remembered again, I think. Oh, did you take pictures, Rich? We have one picture, taking pictures at a US uh, military experimental test Ooh. station is problematic. So <laughs> we filled in the relevant forms and we have one picture, I think. Oh, right. OK, so we may or may not have that picture on the Facebook page. And if the Facebook page disappears suddenly, you know why. Mm. Helen, you're delving into the history of space science as well, mm. aren't you, in, in later editions of It Is Rocket Science. Which sort of specific areas have you sort of focused on? In the past, we've sort of looked at um, spaceflight history. We've looked at things like Project Orion, which was obviously an amazing, amazing project to build. The sort of spaceships we see in the movies, really, right back in uh, the 1950s, and it was a nuclear-powered spaceship. And you can probably guess some of the reasons why that never came to fruition. Uh, basically, it, it, a massive bomb went off to power it, uh, to, uh, to basically get it into space. And obviously, there were problems with people would have died as a result of the nuclear fallout. So... Can't make an omelette without breaking eggs, Sue. (laughs) But anyway, that was why it didn't happen. But yeah, so this time we've actually looked a bit more. We're looking a a bit into the history of astronomy, into the history of where, you know, as we've understood our place in the universe. So we're looking at people like Kepler, who is obviously, you know, gives his name to a space telescope, but also is, is, you know, obviously a a hugely... Your planetary motion person. Yes, yes, exactly. I remember that. I remember doing those. But that's the extraordinary thing, that he's exactly, that he's known for planetary motion exactly, but he also, I mean, he would have to, every now and again, have to take time out from his work to go and deal with family problems because his mother, who sounded like an amazing person, she was a very independent woman and very, uh, obviously had her own ideas about things, was being tried as a witch. What? I know. And it just really it gives you this idea of someone who's on that, that cusp between somebody who's thinking about planets, who's who's giving us, you know, the understanding or <laughs> whose whose equations are used yeah, today. Exactly, exactly. And, and his mother was being tried as a witch. Mother was being tried as a witch. That yes. is incredible. It's extraordinary, isn't and it? And you're you're featuring um Thomas Harriet as well. Yes, Thomas Harriet, who was of course um, only by a few months, but he actually made the first he was British, we should say as well, Thomas Harriet, and he actually made the first very detailed drawings of the moon which is usually credited to Galileo but 
it's, it's quite a sort of interesting thing because he was someone who very much whereas Galileo was very much a showman he was sort of out there he was giving his talks he wanted everyone to know about him uh, Thomas Harriet was in a slightly sort of being British yeah it was being quite British but, uh, but was also in a slightly tricky position because his patron was involved with the gunpowder plot and he was you know he very much got on with, with Walter Raleigh but then obviously after Elizabeth's death Walter Raleigh wasn't very popular either so he couldn't really start sort of putting his hand up and going oh actually as well as being a big old Catholic or atheist or whatever you're accusing me of today I've also made these really interesting drawings of the moon which it's not what you think it really doesn't look like you would think it does so um, yeah maybe he needed to uh, keep his head down a bit about that but yeah he could have been I guess the person we really associated with uh, with the moon and pictures of the moon but instead Galileo Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. Mm. Absolutely. Well, we've uh, heard Richard being in the Edwards Air Force Base and the person we're going to hear from next actually trained there as a test pilot. The former space shuttle pilot, Captain John McBride, he flew more than 60 combat missions during the Vietnam War and NASA selected him as an astronaut in 1978. Now, he went into space in 1984 for an eight-day mission on board the Challenger space shuttle. And during a brief visit to Britain recently, our very own Space Kate, Kate Arkless Gray, caught up with him. What's my favorite memory? I think, I think it would have to be my first vision of Earth from space. When I first saw Earth the first time, this thing I had dreamt about all of my adult life of being up there above the planet, looking back and seeing the Earth in all of its glory, from that unique position of being several hundred miles above the Earth, what was it going to be like and feel like? And I hadn't even really thought about it. I was so busy with post-insertion procedures and shutting down all the launch equipment and getting ready for on urban activities that when I actually got to my role as opening the payload bay doors, I had not yet seen Earth. It hadn't been in any of the windows to see yet from the shuttle. And when I finally hit the magic button, I call it to open the payload bay doors, as it cracked open maybe six or eight inches, I realized I'm over Australia. My first vision of Earth, and all of a sudden it hit me. Finally, all this preparation, all this waiting, I'm here and what could be better than to see the country of Australia in its entirety and its beauty out of one time? I thought my heart was going to jump out of my chest. I was so excited and breathing and heart rate and all this kind of... It just has to be one of the most memorable events of a person's life is that first vision of Earth from that vantage point of space. Astronaut selection sort of traditionally used to be quite macho and a bit military-oriented. Do you think that's changed, and do you think that will help encourage maybe more females into space? Well, I not only think it's changed, it has changed. Last week I got to meet the eight newest NASA astronauts. Four women, four men, four military, four civilian. So you can see right there that at least half of the newest class are non-military test, test pilot type people. And, uh, and I think you'll see over the next several years as we... I hate to think being an old fighter pilot that one of these days we might not need people to get in and not for, you know, military for, I'd be happy if we had no, no necessity for military anywhere, but even if we do, we're going to see the the uh, time where there'll be less and less pilots and more and more just controlled from, like drones from the control room by drone operators. And we're moving toward that, and I think you'll see the same trend in space. I don't think we'll ever get to where we're, not sending men and women up there. Every, you, know, you can do a lot with robotics. And I don't want us to ever have the capacity where a ro- robot can outthink us. So I think we'll always have uh, men and women in the loop with their brain power and their logic power and their hands and their hand-eye coordination. 
real time had an eye coordination that a robot I don't think we'll ever have. If it does, we're all in trouble. 20 years since you flew, not meaning to rub that in, but a lot has changed since then. You know, the shuttle's been retired, we've got commercial rockets, there's talk of space tourism, you know, suborbital flights. What's your take on all that? Good thing, bad thing, somewhere in the middle? Well, my take on it is that's the way mankind works. You know, we're progressing, we're moving forward. Branson's using the Virgin Galactic and we're using SpaceX and all these things to get people into space. They're started on their way, much like uh, people started flying in airlines 100 years ago. We're now starting to get this little nibbling into space tourism, and I think it'll grow and grow until eventually, uh, conceivably, I think, this century. Maybe not in my lifetime, but I'd like to see uh, more what we would term, I guess, routine access to space, where our grandchildren great-grandchildren can really take a voyage off to the moon for a long vacation. And there'll be tour operators and things up there to take them around to see the See a tranquility and all those types of things. I'd certainly like it if that happened. The Association of Space Explorers is quite unique in the way it brings together people who've flown into space from all the different nations uh, around the world that have had that capacity. Yeah, including Britain. Just we're getting there. Currently, there's you know there's quite a, a touchy situation in Ukraine. The U.S. and Russia have got quite different views on that. Do you think that that will be affecting relations on the International Space Station where you've got Russian and American crews working together? It's only if it elevates to the political level of the presidents. You know, as long as we keep it in the hands of the operators and the cosmonauts and the astronauts, we're going to go right on and do what we have been doing now. The astronauts and cosmonauts never lost contact after we first started flying in the 60s. And in 1975, our astronauts and cosmonauts flew Apollo Soyuz together. So we've been either subterraneously sometimes and clandestinely, but we've always managed to stay in touch with one another. And I think every astronaut and every cosmonaut involved in space activities today will do everything he and she can do to prevent potential political problems from ever disrupting what we're doing in space together. Astronaut John McBride talking to Kate Arkless Gray. Now, as a result of the Challenger disaster, his next flight was delayed and he became a congressional director for NASA, but he made a decision after that never to go into space again. But during that first and his only mission, he filmed about half of the IMAX movie, The Dream is Alive, which was shown at the Kennedy Space Center for around, well, over actually 25 years. So it's highly likely that people listening to this podcast have actually seen that film. And um, you've just heard the man who who filmed it. My two take-home messages from that piece. Mm -hmm. One, he's a member of the Association of Space Explorers. Mm -hmm. How cool (laughs) is that? Puts the scouts or guides into perspective, doesn't it? And vacations on the moon. What do we think of that? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? I'd go. I'd like a special stamp as well. Yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) But with your face and the moon on it. Yeah, just a kind of commemorative. Yeah. Why not? Why Why not? Why Why not? not? Indeed. I'm sure we could mock something uh, like that up. Well, thanks again to our guest, Helen Keane, who you can hear on BBC iPlayer with her wonderful series, It Is Rocket Science. There are some pictures of the new Mars Yard on our Facebook page. And if there's something you'd like us to cover on future editions, then uh, let us know via at Space Boffins on Twitter. And that's the Space Boffins podcast, produced in partnership with The Naked Scientists and supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and ABSL Space Products. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. And we'll be back next month. Thanks for listening.